Let us pray. Father, bless now the reading and preaching of your word, that we may behold your glory and the glory of your Son for the sake of our faith. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, something that's interesting is uh, most church buildings used to have graveyards attached to them. Most church buildings used to have graveyards. And so every Sunday, when you would walk into church, you would pass by the tombstones. It's uh, often, it would often be the case that the church would be encircled by graves. Now, while it's rare for churches to have their own burial grounds today, I think there's something fitting about a church building being surrounded by the dead. For one thing, it always served as a reminder of how the faith has been passed on from one generation to the next. We're not the first Christians. We stand on the shoulders of those who go before us, who have preserved the faith and passed it on to us. The church is a kingdom spanning many generations. The tombstones were a reminder of that. Further, seeing the tombstones regularly served as a reminder of the brevity of life. Think of the words of Moses in Psalm 90. Numbering our days aright is the key to wisdom. Oh sure, we can try to hide the fact that we're all going to die. Our culture often does that. But it remains a fact. And reckoning with that fact helps us to mature. Moses tells us. Seeing the tombstones would do that. However, I think there's an even greater reason why it was fitting for congregations to bury their dead on the church grounds so that worship services and burial services happened in the same place. Think about it. The gospel begins in a graveyard. The gospel is the reversal of a funeral. The gospel is about a sealed tomb being broken open. It's about the dead coming back to life to a new and more glorious kind of life, an unending life, resurrection life. The gospel begins in a graveyard. It's all about victory over the graveyard. The risen Christ was first witnessed in a graveyard. The risen Christ was first worshipped in a graveyard. Easter, the key event in the Christian faith, happened in a graveyard. Those words, he is risen, were first spoken in a graveyard. The Christian hope is that every believer whose body is laid to rest in a graveyard will come forth at the last day in resurrection glory. The Christian hope is that the graveyards will be empty. That's the Christian hope. The story here in John chapter 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, shows us all of this. It's about resurrection life and power at work where? In a graveyard. Now, technically, this is not Lazarus's resurrection. It's a miraculous resuscitation, you could say. Lazarus would die again. He would be buried again. And now, along with the rest of God's people, he awaits the final resurrection at the last day. But this story is incredibly important. It's so important to our understanding of the gospel of the resurrection of Easter. All of this, everything that happens here is a preview of what is to come with Jesus. It's Easter before Easter. Just a, a few days later, just a few chapters later in John's Gospel, Jesus will undergo his own death and resurrection. This story of Lazarus' resurrection, if you will, is a preview of coming attractions. This is a trailer pointing us to the main event. You may know that John's Gospel is divided up into two 
books, so to speak. There is what is called the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. And the Book of Signs is chapters 1 through 12. It's built around seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performs. The Book of Glory then is focused on Jesus' own death and resurrection. The raising of Lazarus is the final and greatest of the seven signs in the book of signs, and it prepares the way for the book of glory. It's like a bridge from one book to the next. The raising of Lazarus is really the turning point in John's gospel because Jesus knows raising Lazarus to life will mean the end of his life. This will be what triggers the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders to put Jesus to death. The raising of Lazarus leads to the dying of Jesus. But of course, the dying of Jesus is not the end. The dying of Jesus leads to the rising of Jesus, and the rising of Jesus leads to our own resurrection. But John chapter 11 is much more than just another miracle story. It's a, it's a narrative that is actually full of all kinds of twists and turns and mysteries and puzzles, all of which taken together give us clues that we can use to piece together an understanding not only of what Jesus will do in the future at the last day, but also what Jesus is doing in our lives this very day. It helps us to understand not only what's coming, but what's happening right now. The story opens with Lazarus falling ill. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. They don't come out and say it, but obviously there is a request implied here for Jesus to do something. Obviously, too, here we see that Jesus had a very special and close friendship with Lazarus. Lazarus is identified as the one Jesus loves. Jesus was a man of many friends. He did not hide his love for his friends. It was expressed in obvious ways so they could speak this way. These sisters describe Lazarus as the one you love. In fact, it's interesting throughout this story, the text several times emphasizes the love that Jesus has for Lazarus as well as these other family members, Mary and Martha. But already here, there are a couple of oddities in verse 4, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a little bit odd, I think. Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, but in fact, Lazarus does die. And in fact, if you put the whole chronology, I'll, I'll spare you the details here, but if you put together the whole chronology of the passage, things like how long it would take messengers to get to Jesus from Mary and Martha uh, when, they, when they sent the messengers out, uh, and, and then, of course, we know when Lazarus actually died. By the time Jesus says these words, this illness does not lead to death, Lazarus is already dead. And I think that's kind of odd because no doubt Jesus knew that he was dead. What Jesus does in verse 4 is tell us his purpose, the real purpose behind Lazarus' illness and how Jesus will deal with it. What is his purpose? It is all for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Lazarus' trial is an opportunity for God to reveal his glory. How that's going to happen is, of course, not clear yet, but we need to keep going. There's something else strange in verse 6. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and what does he do? Jesus hears Lazarus is sick, and so he stays in the place where he was two more days. 
hate to say it, but Jesus would not have been a very good first responder. Can you imagine dialing 911 and they say, oh, yes, uh, somebody will be right over in a couple of days. We'll send somebody to help you, but it's going to be two days from now. You wouldn't be very satisfied with that. Why does Jesus wait, especially since we've already seen highlighted Jesus' love for Lazarus? Why does he wait? Why is there no sense of urgency? Why would Jesus delay helping a loved one? If Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha, if he loves this family so much, and that's obvious again because his love for each of them is singled out by name there in verse 5, why leave them hanging? Why make them wait? Well, remember what we just saw. This is all for God's glory and Jesus' glory. Somehow there will be more glory if he waits. See, again, this is not really a story about sickness and death. It's a story about glory. And I think there's a lesson here for us if you want to have a clue to how God works in your life. Maybe sometimes you cry out to God with an urgent prayer request. You know, you're dialing 911, the spiritual hotline in your prayers to God. You're bringing urgent prayer requests before God, and God doesn't seem to act. God delays. Well, this shows us maybe God has other plans. Maybe God has greater plans, plans that will bring greater glory to himself. A lot of times when we think we need God to act now, he delays. And it might seem when God is delaying that he doesn't really love us, that there's no compassion or care for us on God's part, but God does love us. And indeed, the reason he delays is for our good. Why does God sometimes delay answering your prayer? It's because he loves you. And you need to understand that. Why does God sometimes delay in answering your prayer? It's for his glory and your good. It's because he loves you. What we need to remember is that while we have emergencies, Jesus does not. Jesus never has an emergency. I think Jesus here is kind of like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Remember when Gandalf says in Lord of the Rings, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And so it is with Jesus. The Messiah is never late, nor is he early. Jesus arrives precisely when he means to. And that's what's going to happen here. Jesus' delay may be puzzling to Mary and Martha, but it is purposeful. But you know, there are actually a few more twists along the way to Lazarus' home. It's as if Jesus keeps zigzagging. It's very interesting. We might wonder, why does Jesus delay? Why does Jesus wait these two days? We might ask a question like this. Why did God leave Joseph to be falsely accused in the book of Genesis, to be thrown into prison and then forgotten? Why did God leave Joseph to go through all of that? Why did God ha allow Job to have everything taken from him? Loss of wife, kids, health, possessions. Why did God let Paul get arrested and thrown into a Roman jail cell and then later shipwrecked? Or, or why did he let Paul have so many health problems? None of these things make sense on the surface. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, all of these losses led to even greater gains. And so it will be with Lazarus, allowing him to die and rot in the grave for four days actually promotes 
God's plan. It reveals God's glory. It leads to conversions. It deepens the faith of believers. When we Christians say all things happen for good, God works together all things for our good, that's not just a cliche. That is the bedrock of our faith. See, we learn here, God's not a cosmic bellhop who takes orders from us, who's at our beck and call, who's uninterested in our well-being. Rather, when God delays, when God seems to be taking his time, it's because his plan for us is ultimately better than any plan we could devise for ourselves. It's a big twist in the the plot here that Jesus would delay for two days. But there are other twists in the plot, other twists and turns in this story. Again, it seems like Jesus keeps zigzagging. Finally, in verse 7, after a couple days have passed, Jesus says, let us go to Judea. That's where Lazarus is, Judea, uh, in, in the region of Bethany of Judea. But there's a problem with that too. You know, there's a problem if Jesus stays. It seems like he's leaving Lazarus, uh, basically leaving Martha and Lazarus hanging when he could help Lazarus. But if he goes to Bethany in Judea, there's a problem with that as well because Jesus was just in that region. And what happened when Jesus was there? The Jews tried to kill him. People are probably wondering, the disciples are probably, you know, people are probably wondering why Jesus hasn't healed Lazarus at a distance since he has shown he could do that in other cases. Lazarus is dying. And if Jesus goes to Bethany, you know, Jesus could end up dead too. And the disciples are thinking, it's bad enough that Lazarus has died. We don't want Jesus to die too. Again, last time Jesus was in this region, the Jews had picked up rocks to stone him. If Jesus goes back into Bethany of Judea, he's a wanted man there. He's considered an outlaw. There are wanted posters of Jesus all over Bethany of Judea. Wanted posters with Jesus' face on them. Why leave a safe place and go to a dangerous place, especially when it seems too late? Well, Jesus explains what he's doing in an interesting way. In verse 9, Jesus says, there are 12 hours in a day. In other words, it's time for me to work. It is the light time. It is time for me to carry out my mission. Jesus talks about darkness and light then in a fairly cryptic way. And then he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I must go wake him. Now, of course, this happens so often in the Gospels, the disciples really miss Jesus' meaning, and in an attempt to dissuade Jesus from going, they say, hey, great, if Lazarus is sleeping, maybe he'll recover. Maybe a good sleep is all he needs to get better. Maybe some rest will lead to recovery, and we won't have to go there after all. But, of course, sleep is Jesus' metaphor for death here, and so he spells that out for them in verse 14. So understand the situation here. Understand where we are in the story. Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come to Bethany to heal Lazarus, and he waited till it was too late. Now he's going to go to Bethany in Judea, but the disciples don't want him to go because it's dangerous. Mary and Martha wanted him to go, and he waited. Now he's going, and the disciples don't want him to go. So there's kind of this tug of war Uh, with Jesus in the center. Uh, These different things are going on. And then there's another one of those oddities in the story. Jesus says, I am glad I was not there so you may believe. Jesus has just said Lazarus is dead, and he's not sad Lazarus is dead. He's glad Lazarus is dead. And he says, this is so they might believe. Which this had to be very 
mysterious to the disciples that Jesus would speak this way, but Jesus can see what they cannot. He knows how this story will go. Again, it's a story about God's glory, but now we see it's also about their faith. It's about God's glory. It's also about their faith. In other words, Jesus has delayed, and now that he is going, he's going not only for God's glory, he's going for their good for the sake of their faith. The way Jesus deals with Lazarus is certainly not what Mary and Martha were hoping for at first. It's not what the disciples want now either. But Jesus has his own purposes. This is going to bring greater glory to God and greater growth to their faith. And so again, think about this. I think there's a lesson here. There's a clue here that helps us understand how God works in our lives. When God doesn't answer your prayer request right away, again, it's not because he doesn't care. It's because God has something bigger and better in view. His glory and your good. His glory being displayed and also your faith being strengthened. That's been added to the picture now. And then get this, and, and, and I love this little twist in the story, this little tidbit. Again, the disciples are very reluctant to go to Judea with Jesus because it is dangerous. And Thomas the twin speaks up. And Thomas the twin says, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus is going, let, all, let's, let us also go with him. Even if it means dying, we should go with Jesus. This is the Thomas more commonly known as Doubting Thomas because of his response to resurrection reports later in John's Gospel. That's how he's known as Doubting Thomas, but I'm not sure that's really fair, because here he is, Courageous Thomas. Thomas wants to keep following Jesus right into the teeth of danger. He is bold, he is ready to die for Jesus and with Jesus, and it's very interesting, he's identified as Thomas the twin. That may mean that he had a twin brother, but actually, many in the early church believed that Thomas was called the twin because he so closely resembled Jesus physically. He looked a lot like Jesus, so much so that he could have passed for a twin of Jesus. So think about this, if that's the case. In Judea, they're trying to kill Jesus. If they go to Judea, there's always that possibility they might mistake Thomas for Jesus. He would be easily mistaken for Jesus. He might end up getting killed instead. If they go to Judea, all of the disciples along with Jesus are at risk, but Thomas most especially among the disciples. And he's the most ready to go. He's Thomas the brave, Thomas the bold, Thomas the courageous. Well, Jesus insists that they go, and Thomas had said we all ought to go with him, so they do. Understand here, this means Jesus is willing to die so that Lazarus might live. The disciples make the journey to Judea, to Bethany. And by this point, verse 17 tells us Lazarus has been dead for four days. And a funeral is going on. Funerals back then could last for several days. So Mary and Martha are grieving. Friends have come to grieve with them. And I'll tell you, that, that's another thing that I think is very helpful here in this story. Whenever a loved one is lost, it's good and necessary to grieve. There's lots of grieving in this passage. It's good and necessary to grieve when a loved one is lost. And it is good to do so. It is good to grieve in the company of friends and family. To have your natural family as well as your church family with you. To support you through times of grief. And that's what you see going on here. These, these are good people. That's what they're doing. Good, faithful people. They're grieving and they're doing so in community. 
the modern tendency we have to sanitize funerals of all grief, to turn funerals into celebrations of life, I think is actually very unhealthy, that kind of suppression of grief that often happens. Obviously, we don't grieve the way pagans do. We don't grieve death the way pagans do. But we do grieve. We grieve death because death is the curse. Death is the enemy. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death tears apart loved ones. It tears apart body and soul. It tears apart things that belong together. Now in the story, Martha, and this is not surprising given what we know of Martha from elsewhere, Martha can't stay put. And so when she hears Jesus is on the way, she goes out to greet Jesus. And she says to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only. Those are some of the saddest words you can speak. If only, if only, if only. Martha is expressing her disappointment in Jesus. She's disappointed, and she expresses that. Now, she also expresses confidence that whatever Jesus asks God for, he will give. But that confidence that Jesus can have anything he asks God for is actually what intensifies her disappointment because basically she's saying to Jesus, I know you could have done something and you didn't. You could have stopped my brother from dying and you didn't. Verse 23, Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. Now Martha's a good theologian. She knows her Old Testament. She knows there will be a general resurrection of all people at the end of history. And so she states that. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's what scripture teaches, a general, uh, a general resurrection of all people at the last day. Jesus responds, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is what I came for. This is really the punchline of the whole passage. Jesus is saying, I came for this reason, to be the resurrection and the life, to bring resurrection life into the world, to bring eternal life into the world. He's saying, I came to redeem and renew and restore and recreate. I came to heal and to make whole. I came to drive sin and death and suffering out of God's good creation. I am the resurrection and the life. I came to fill the whole creation with light and life and love and glory. I came to raise the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. See, resurrection is not just a future event. It is that, but it's not just a future event. Resurrection is not just a doctrine we believe in. It is certainly a doctrine we confess, but it's not just that. Resurrection is a person. Resurrection has a name and a face. Resurrection life, resurrection power is embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection. All resurrection life and power are found in him. And to be united to him by faith is to have that resurrection power flowing through you. It is to share in his indestructible resurrection Life. This is why he came, to give us this life. Jesus came to suffer and die for sinners, to conquer the curse, to crush Satan under his feet, to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. He died, and then he rose again victoriously. 
to guarantee our salvation, our inheritance, our place in the new creation. He rose that we might rise as well. He entered into resurrection glory, resurrection life, in order to bring us there with him. And so those who believe in Jesus will never die. Oh, they'll die, but they'll never really die. They'll die, but they'll live, and they'll live eternally. And they'll be raised up to live in glory for all eternity. Do you believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? That he took the curse for you? That he rose again for you to bring you the hope and certainty of eternal life in glory? Do you believe that? Martha did. And Martha confesses her faith in these things. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. That needs to be our confession as well. We need the faith of Martha. Even when we're disappointed in Jesus, we need the faith of Martha. This needs to be our confession, even when we can't understand why Jesus has delayed, why he hasn't answered our prayers the way we hoped for. Well, then Jesus calls for Mary. Mary comes out to meet him. She falls at his feet, and she says exactly what Martha had said. Obviously, the sisters had been discussing this. Uh, Mary says just what Martha had said. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus sees her weeping and the others weeping, and he's deeply moved by the grief of his friends. And he asks to be taken to Lazarus' tomb. And when he got there, what did he do? Verse 35 tells us. It's famous because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. When he got to the tomb of Lazarus, what did he do? When Jesus encountered the death of his beloved one, his beloved friend, what did he do? Jesus wept. The crowds around see this as proof of Jesus' great love for Lazarus, but it also, again, provokes wonder as to why Jesus did not heal him since he healed others. If you've healed others, why wouldn't you heal the one you have such a special relationship with? Again, just because Jesus doesn't heal you right away doesn't mean he doesn't have a special relationship with you or a special love for you. We might ask, this, this is another oddity in the story, why would Jesus weep? He has just said, I am the resurrection and the life. Why would Jesus weep if he is the resurrection and the life? Earlier, he said he was glad that Lazarus died. I mean, it's like Jesus has got this emotional roller coaster going on. <laughs> Seems like he's glad when he should have been sad, and now he's sad when he should be glad. What's happening? Even though Jesus is about to raise Lazarus, he still weeps. He weeps with those who weep. He weeps because his friends are weeping. He weeps because he is present in the moment with those he loves. And this is the right emotional response. It is the right emotional response to grieve in the face of death. Jesus is not Spock you know, from Star Trek. You know, Jesus is not a, a stoic. Jesus had emotions. Jesus has emotions. But we see this in his earthly ministry. When Jesus walked this earth, Jesus experienced all kinds of feelings and emotions, sinless emotions to be sure, but real emotions nonetheless. And so here in the face of death, the death of a loved one, Jesus weeps, he grieves, he agonizes. Why? Because death is painful. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is the enemy. 
Here you see Jesus as a man who is in touch with his emotions. He feels the right thing at the right time, in the right way, to the right degree. Jesus weeps. And that means there are going to be times when we should weep as well. At a Christian funeral, you know, we might ask, at a Christian funeral, why weep when we know there's going to be a resurrection, when we know this is not the end? Well, even though death is not the end, death is still terrible. And even if death does not have the last word, which it does not, death is still a curse and an enemy. And it still hurts. It still tears apart things that belong together. But this is what I think we really see here in terms of what's going on in this story. You can be sad about a singular event like the death of a loved one while still being glad about the big picture of what God is doing and has promised to do. See that? You can be sad about a singular thing, a singular event, a terrible event, while still being glad about the big picture, the big story of what God is doing. You can have sad events within a glad story. You can have sad chapters in a story with a happy ending. We don't deny the sadness because we know truly evil and painful things happen in God's world. They really are evil. They really are painful. We really can be sad about them, but we do not stay sad because we know Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And as Tolkien said, he will make all the sad things come untrue. Or as Lewis put it, he will turn every agony into a glory. He will make death work backwards. If you're in a sad place in life, do you know what that means? If you're in a sad place in life and experiencing disappointment with Jesus, if you're in a sad place in life, you know what that means? It just means Jesus isn't done. It means your story's not over. Because Jesus will turn that sadness to gladness, and ultimately the gladness will envelop the sadness and swallow up the sadness. Sad things really are sad, but the glad things are greater, and the glad things will overcome the sad things in the end. That's what this story shows us. But there's another emotion in the mix here. Verses 33 and 38 describe Jesus as, some translations say groaning, the word could also be translated as indignant, or actually it could be translated as angry. Death makes Jesus angry. And that's a good thing. If death is an enemy, which it is, you want Jesus to be angry at your enemy, the ultimate enemy of death. Jesus is angry in the face of death. Not just sad, but angry, and angry enough to do something about it. It's a righteous anger. So Jesus commands, take away the stone. Now what are they thinking at this moment? Take away the stone? Again, Jesus, are you crazy? They're probably thinking, kind of best case scenario, best interpretation they could put on this, they're probably thinking, oh, Jesus wants to see Lazarus one last time, you know, kind of like an open casket kind of thing. Jesus didn't get here in time to say goodbye for whatever reason. Uh, he wants to, to, to be able to see the face of his friend one last time. Unfortunately, a few days have passed. You know, it's too, it's too late uh, because now you've got a decaying, decomposing corpse in that tomb, and so there's going to be a smell and so Martha, ever the practical one, points this out. But Jesus says, did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Know what the glory of God is going to be here, how the glory of God is manifest. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. They roll the stone away, and certainly this is prophetic of what will happen with Jesus on the third day after his death. 
They roll the stone away. Jesus prays to the Father in verse 42. He prays for their faith, the faith of of, of those gathered around, that they would see the real meaning of what he's about to do and would believe. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said it was a good thing, it was good and necessary for Jesus to call Lazarus by name. Because if Jesus had just issued a general call, come forth, every tomb in the world would have emptied at that moment. So he had to say, Lazarus, I'm just talking to one of you dead people, just Lazarus. You're the only one I want to come forth at this time. And what happens? His voice raises the dead. This is the glory of God. This is Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. His voice raises the dead. He's already talked about this back in John 5, how his voice will bring the dead out of their graves. Here it happens. Lazarus comes forth, but note, he's still in his grave clothes. And so Jesus commands the others to go unbind him. And again, what a great picture this is. Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He raises the dead, but then he calls on the other disciples to help where they can. And so they do. They go unbind Lazarus from his grave clothes. Sometimes, even after we enter into new life in Christ, we still struggle to get free of the old grave clothes. The old sinful habits die hard. The same old fears sometimes plague us. And so we need the help of the people of God to get the grave clothes off us. We've been given new life in Christ, but we've still got to get the grave clothes off. And the people of God can help with that. But note, a little bit later in John's Gospel, Uh, John's gospel has the most to say about Jesus' grave clothes, but one thing that's really clear, when Jesus comes forth from his tomb, towards the end of John's gospel, he leaves his grave clothes behind. It's not like this. He's not going to need them anymore. He's not going to need anybody to come unbind him. He's broken free of death himself, because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, what is the outcome of this story? Well, in the next few verses of John's gospel, he tells us many of the Jews believed because of this miracle, this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. Others acted as spies and went and told the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and and the Jewish leaders decided, this is the last straw. We cannot let this go on any further. And so they concoct a plot, and they set in motion a plan to get Jesus crucified. Now, why you would think you could get away with crucifying a man who's just raised the dead, I don't know. Why you would think it would be worthwhile to crucify a man who is the resurrection and the life, I don't know, but that's what they do. And of course, that does indeed lead to Jesus' death. Jesus will die so Lazarus can live, but in dying, Jesus will defeat death and rise again. Well, what does all this mean? What does the raising of Lazarus mean? Faithful Jews, like Martha, were expecting a resurrection of all people at the last day, at the end of history. But no one was expecting the resurrection of one man in the middle of history. That's what Jesus is about to do. One man entering into resurrection life, not at the end of history, but in the middle of history. He's going to die and then rise again in the middle of history. And so what he does here with Lazarus is a sign of that. Bringing Lazarus back from the dead is a sign, a sign that this is the turning point in history. It is the future breaking into the present. It's the glory of the last day breaking into the present day. See, Jesus' resurrection has now happened. Jesus has been raised 
from the dead. And that means resurrection, life, and power have already been unleashed in the world. Resurrection, life, and power are already at work in us. What Jesus does for Lazarus here in this chapter is a story. It is a sign of what Jesus will do for all of us in the end. What Jesus does in this story for Lazarus is a sign of what he will do for all of us. Think about all of the movements that take place in this story. In this story, those who believe in Jesus move from sad to glad. For Lazarus, there is the movement from death to life. For many in the crowd, there's a move, movement from unbelief to faith. There's a movement from darkness to light and to love and to basking in God's glory. You know, I find it really, really interesting. Think about all the miracles of Jesus. Jesus canceled every funeral he ever attended. Jesus canceled every funeral he ever attended during his earthly ministry. And he's going to cancel your funeral too. He's going to reverse your funeral as well. He canceled every funeral he ever attended during his earthly ministry. And he will reverse every funeral there's ever been at the last day. Why? Because he is the resurrection, and the life. As the resurrection and the life, Jesus has entered into combat with death, and he has won. Death is the enemy, but Jesus has conquered death. There are some people who will seek to deny death and, and, and say that it's just some kind of illusion. There are, there are others who will try to befriend death and act as if it isn't really an enemy. Both ways are mistakes. We should weep over death because it really is an enemy. But then we should rejoice because Jesus has defeated this enemy. Joy swallows up grief. Gladness swallows up sadness. Life swallows up death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is our victor. He is our champion. He is the one who has triumphed over death and sin and Satan for us. Through his own death and resurrection, he has become the source of unending resurrection life for all who are united to him by faith. He is the one who breaks the tyranny of death. He enters into our sadness so he can turn it into gladness. He weeps with us, but only so he can wipe away every tear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah.